Um, Juan, Karen, uh, thank you both very much for that kind introductions. Um, I'm thrilled that we have a Global Health Grand Rounds uh, on the yearly schedule now. I think it really demonstrates what a huge part of the Connecticut children's experience global health has become. And we're going to use today's opportunity to really highlight um, a number of different ways in which pediatricians can be involved in global health. And I think it's really important to note that this is not just something that has been deemed important by Connecticut Children's, but it's really something that comes straight from the top, from the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, who uh, developed a policy statement written by uh, Parmi Suchdev and Cindy Howard um, uh, from the section of International Child Health to really describe why being involved in global health is important for pediatricians and how people may decide to be involved in global health. And again, this is not just sort of an opinion piece. This is the policy statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics published towards the end of last year. So global health is a discipline that prioritizes equity in healthcare and stresses the commonality of health issues that require collective interdisciplinary action both within and across national borders. And again, the work that we do here at Connecticut Children's I think is really an example of that where um, it's not just physicians, it's not just nurses, it's not just uh, aides or techs, it's really everybody working together to support our partners in resource limited settings or to support our patients coming here to the United States uh, to have better health and for our children to have better health. And again, this is emphasized in the policy statement that global health is no longer just a consideration of having to go from here to someplace else in a resource-limited setting to improve the health care there, that there is so much that can be done domestically to improve the health of children. Um, because children don't know borders. Children come from uh, around the world to the United States for a variety of reasons and need better health care. Usually when we do think about global health, we think about going to other places. And I think it's really important to recognize that 90% of the world's children live in low and middle income countries, 90%, okay? So when we think about, you know, healthcare policies here, when we think about um, creating uh, pathways and how we're going to recommend that pediatricians around the world care for children, um, it's really important to note that most children don't live in resource replete settings like we do. They live in resource limited settings and they face uh, you know, healthcare provider shortages, injury and surgical supply shortages. There's not chronic injury prevention. Um, they deal with issues of malnutrition. All these really impact their lives. And so we are only dealing with such a, a minority of children here. It's really important to recognize where we fit in the world structure and that we are citizens of the world. 5.4 million deaths occur uh, among children less than five years of age worldwide. And these are unexpected deaths. Um, 43% of all children less than five years of age in these countries are at risk of not attaining um, their full developmental and health capacity. Okay? There's so much work to be done. Um, you can look at the statistics and you can see that uh, um, mortality in the under five age group is getting better. It's increasingly improving around the world, but there's still so much to be done. This talk is really about the people here uh, at Connecticut Children's who are involved in global health. And, and so I don't want to take up too much time before getting these panelists up here. Um, one of the important things I think that everybody here uh, in the audience should recognize is that um, increasingly U.S. pediatricians are uh, asked to care for or, or 
are choosing to care for immigrant children, refugee children, non-English speakers uh, who come to this country uh, to need health care. In addition, an increasing number of children are, are going abroad, are traveling with their families, are traveling in a variety of different aspects, um, and either need to be prepared for these health care experiences or may um, uh, become ill while abroad. And so there needs to be a, an expertise within this country of caring for children who have diseases that we don't routinely think about as, uh, as U.S.-based diseases or diseases in resource-replete countries. And so for that reason, uh, Dr. Melissa Held from the uh, Division of uh, Infectious Disease has really over the last year, year and a half, worked tirelessly to um, develop the Global Child Health Clinic so that children who are in this country who need care um, can get the best care possible. Um, you can see her credentials here. I won't list them off. Um, Dr. Held uh, is uh, an incredibly passionate member of the Division of uh, Infectious Disease, is also um, a uh, healthcare educator uh, at the university in charge of medical education um, rotations, and has also in the past led global health electives to a variety of countries in Central America. So I'd like to ask Dr. Held to come up now and talk a little bit about her experience with the Global Child Health Clinic. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's really a pleasure to uh, talk to you a little bit about the development of this clinic, which has become very near and dear to my heart. Um, I thought I would tell you a little bit about how I got into this. Um, so I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, so what you don't see up there is my undergraduate degree is in animal sciences. So um, I think I know a little bit more about farm animals than the average pediatrician. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, when I decided to do infectious diseases as a fellowship, um, I already really had a deep interest in global child health and tropical diseases. Um, in fact, I, my fellowship research was in parasitology, but as you can imagine, there's not a lot of hookworm disease in Connecticut, so shifting gears a little bit, um, when I came to Connecticut Children's, um, I worked initially with one of our former chief residents who had an interest and some expertise in global child health, and together we developed a, an elective for residents. And so for several years, we had a one-month elective. We chose four residents each of those years, and it was a month-long rotation in skill development, leadership skills, um, knowledge skills, and then we went for about a week or so to um, Guatemala and worked with a school, Niños de Guatemala, um, which is a Dutch Guatemalan um, organization, to help provide basically well-child visits um, for these children because they had not seen a pediatrician before. And we partnered with the local clinics and other physicians in the area to provide some health care for them. Um, for, for a number of reasons, uh, we needed to stop that relationship for the time being. Um, but I really wanted to continue work um, here. And with the encouragement of Dr. Silverman, um, he, I think, found out that I had uh, worked as a fellow at the Yale Refugee Clinic um, when I was there training. And, I really had always been very eager to start a clinic here in uh, refugee and, and travel medicine, and the time was really right to develop that clinic. I started to do a little bit of research and realized that there continued to be a very large practice gap for us in pediatrics, and managing the medical, developmental, and psychosocial needs of children in the resettled refugee, adoption, or immigrant population is certainly complex. 
And primary care clinicians and community providers who encounter these patients, even after they come to the United States, we really need to be familiar with their unique customs, their common illnesses, as well as barriers to health care that these populations face. So in developing the clinic, it really took a little over a year for me to feel like I was ready to open the doors. It was a year-long process of a lot of research, lots of discussions with different people across the state. And I want to just um, acknowledge a, just a few people. Dr. Susan Levine, who is in charge of the adult refugee clinic at UConn Health, uh, we met. Um, she was seeing the adults who were coming um, to be resettled, but really, we realized that no one was really seeing these children. There were a few pediatricians and family medicine physicians in the northern part of the state who would sporadically try to see some of these kids. Um, but there really was no center to sort of coordinate the care and then hand over care to a primary care physician for them to take over um, their ongoing um, maintenance care. I met with Dr. Camille Brown, who is the director of the pediatric um, refugee clinic at Yale New Haven Hospital. Um, it was really fun to go back there because many of the nurses I had worked with in my training were still there in the clinic. Um, obviously, we work very closely with Catholic Charities, which is one of the organizations that helps to resettle these families. And we really met with them on a, a number of different times to just see what did their, uh, their clients, their uh, folks need from us, what could we provide for them. I met several times with Allison Stratton at the Department of Public Health just down the street, who is the Refugee and Immigrant Health Coordinator. And then had to meet with my infectious disease staff to say, you know, we'd like to start this clinic. What would the flow of that look like? Um, what additional training do we all need, if any? Um, and because I felt like I wanted to just continue my own work and education in refugee health, I completed a certificate program in refugee health um, just this past year. Even more exciting, there were some of our own pediatric residents who applied for and um, got a catch grant from the American Academy of Pediatrics specifically to work with this population. Um, and I've been working with them over the past year. They've come with me to see some of these patients in the clinic. And we've even been able to have them follow these patients at the CHC as their primary care providers when we are completed with our initial visits. So it's been very, very exciting. So how did this work? Um, Catholic Charities basically would contact me and say, we have a family coming with this many children. And really, you need to see these kids within the first 30 days of arrival. Um, so we would try to set up two visits initially. Um, the first visit, um, usually by then, we would have access to their records. And again, I just want to remind people that uh, refugees actually have legal status in the United States. So they are uh, coming over here with US Department of State paperwork. They have been screened overseas before coming here. Um, and so many of them do have a history of some level of vaccination records, um, some health records. Many times they come with nothing <laughs> or things that are illegible. And so we really have to spend some time trying to figure out what's real, what's not, might they actually have been vaccinated for, um, and those sort of things. So what we decided to do was uh, do an initial visit where we would introduce ourselves, we would get to know the family a little bit, talk a little bit about some of the concerns they might have. And then we started with lab work. So we would, depending on where they were coming from, parasite screening, HIV and TB testing, uh, lead is a very big problem across the world, um, a CBC. And then again, depending on where they were coming from, screening for some nutritional deficiencies. 
Um, then they would come back a few days later, and by then I would have the results of those labs and I could sort of make decisions with my team to then talk about ongoing care for them. And at that full visit, it really took a few hours. It can take at least an hour per child, and so if the family's coming with four or five children, um, it can be a full day affair. Um, but it's incredibly rewarding. We spend a lot of time screening for mental health disorders, um, screening for dental issues, chronic health concerns, and any need for any additional specialty visits. What I tell the residents is the infectious disease stuff is easy. I can do that. It's all the other things that are really, really challenging. Um, and I want to just give a shout out to Dr. Trish Garcia and the residents who have been working with me <clears throat> because they designed an EPIC template that is incredibly thorough and we really are able to screen for lots of things and then print off that report to the primary care provider. So we actually provide a handoff to the primary care provider telling them what we've already done and um, we can give recommendations for additional follow-up, what we started in terms of vaccine catch-up and what will be needed next. We start with our first round of prescriptions for things. Many of these children have latent tuberculosis. Um, and then we've made some referrals, actually, to some of our Connecticut children's specialty providers as needed. So as you can imagine, in the current political atmosphere, there are not a lot of refugees uh, coming. So although the first six months of the clinic, we, we hung out our shingle in January of 2018, and we were relatively busy for about six months. And then um, for the past few months, it's been completely quiet. Um, and um, I actually found out that in 2018, we only had 147 refugees come to the state of Connecticut, and the years prior, it was about 900 to 1,000 per year. So things have been very quiet, so we've sort of shifted our focus and energies to the travel part of our clinic, um, which has been very busy, and we provide pre-travel, uh, during travel, and after travel care to uh, folks in the state of Connecticut whose children are traveling abroad. These are usually referrals made by primary care physicians. And I, um, you know, again, want to thank my own clinic staff who really review very thoroughly where the families are traveling. Um, are they staying with families? Is this a school-based type of mission uh, trip? And we review the CDC recommendations uh, that are current for those areas. Immunization and other health records are reviewed. And then we do spend quite a bit of time giving anticipatory guidance. Um, are there immunizations that need to be given for their travel, anti-malaria recommendations? And we are one of the few clinics in the state that do have access to the yellow fever vaccine. So that's um, an important note because many of the children who want to travel abroad require the yellow fever vaccine for entry into those countries, and there's not a lot of places for them to get that. So this is just one of my favorite pictures um, from my time in Guatemala. And, um, you know, again, I think... I've been really lucky to have taken the work um, that I've done here um, and felt very fulfilled by trying to participate in global child health activities without really needing to travel abroad, which my kids and my husband are really happy about. Um, and I uh, want to thank you for, for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Held. Um, to continue with the policy statement by the American Academy of Pediatrics as to the role of the pediatrician in global health, you know, I, I think it's also very important to note that, you know, when those who do go abroad um, uh, bring their skills with them, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people talk about how I, I you know, gained so much more than I uh, received. 
And I think sometimes people think that that's you know, just um, uh, something that people say, but it is really true. The, the number of skills that you can uh, gain from being involved in global health, again, whether it's domestically and, and hearing about the struggles that your patients have even just in getting to clinic or getting their prescription filled, you really can use some of the strategies that you learn to help them uh, get the, the medicines that they need or the care that they need and then bring that over to your patients who may be domestically based or you know, grew up here um, and it makes you a better skilled provider. Or I even think about and, and talk to the residents about how you know, we think about other countries as being resource limited, but I, I deal with resource limitations all the time here. Uh, I work in the pediatric ICU, and all the time we are running out of beds and having to figure out how we're going to use what resources we have most effectively, who needs what more than somebody else, or down in the emergency department, how I may have a patient who um, th they need pre-authorization for this anti-seizure medicine, but they can't get it right now, but if they go home tomorrow and they don't have their medicine, they may start seizing again. And what are some of the things that we learn or some of the patients that we learn when being involved in global health that we can bring back here to make us better uh, health care providers? Um, the other thing that's an important part of this statement, and we're to see some of the learners here, is that it's really recommended now by the American Academy of Pediatrics that there be educational opportunities both for pediatricians and trainees within departments of pediatrics. And so that's why I'm thrilled that here um, we have uh, this Grand Rounds available, and I'll put up the slide later, but on May 17th, put it in your calendar in the afternoon, that's a Friday, May 17th, we have our yearly global health get-together. Originally, it was just a fair, um, then it evolved into a global health conference, and now it's a global health symposium. And it's going to be an afternoon CME event uh, with various speakers from uh, around the region, from UConn, from Hartford Hospital, from here, um, and another uh, couple of other institutions as well, um, talking about global health, talking about global health experiences, talking about how to improve healthcare in resource-limited settings. Um, to talk a little bit more about uh, global health experiences outside of the United States, but also about the role of trainees in global health, um, are trainees here going abroad uh, to resource-limited settings to gain experiences, improve their skills, but also in improving the training of residents and, and learners in other countries uh, is Dr. Naveed Hussain, one of our neonatologists from uh, uh, both from here uh, at Harvard Hospital in the NICU and also John Dempsey as well. Dr. Hussain is a, a large experience in research, in mentoring, in training neonatologists, and uh, um, he's going to talk to you about some of his experiences in Hyderabad, India, and the work he's doing with the NICE Institute. Dr. Hussain? Thank you, and good morning, everybody. Um, just wanted to uh, share a bit of my experience um, in India. I've been doing this for a long time now. About um, ten, more than ten years, and this, um, it's a great opportunity, um, Adam, for making this uh, possible so that I can share this. Um, there's a lot to share, but um, I've got a very limited amount of time, so I'm going to just give you an overview of one particular aspect of it. Um, when I was in India training, um, we used to see people coming from abroad and giving talks and doing some service and going back and. It's always intrigued me that there's this model where um, this like a fly-in, fly-out kind of model where people come in, do their work, and go back. And then everything goes back to the same in India again. And I didn't want to fall into the same thing. So I, I've 
thought maybe it'd be better to teach them how to fish rather than just give them fish. And so we taking the approach of um, education and training in India as a way to improve healthcare there. So um, fortunately, I have um, um, found this nice foundation, which is run by a classmate of mine from, uh, from medical school in India, um, and been collaborating with them for more than 10 years um, in doing a few things. Um, started off initially in 2008 to 2012 by, by going and doing educational CMEs for doctors and trainees. But then we realized that actually most of the work is done by the nurses and other people, and they did not get enough training. So then we expanded our scope um, uh, between 2013 to 2015 in basically doing workshops and hands-on training for both doctors and, uh, and nurses. And so that, that kind of laid the foundation, and then we realized that now to make things more sustainable, we've got to actually train them into certain programs and transfer some of the technology um, and make, make it happen over there. So um, um, with that idea, I approached um, Global Health um, and Adam and others here, and uh, we decided to actually raise funds through the CCMC Foundation and raise enough funds to actually um, uh, start a, what we call Cool Kids Program in, in Hyderabad, India. Cool Kids Program is basically using the technology of um, therapeutic hypothermia for birth asphyxia and, and, and treating those babies that are born with birth asphyxia. And so that, that started, um, and uh, the amount of funds we collected was incredible. Within a few months, we got enough funds to actually purchase the hypothermia equipment get it transferred to India, and then we had a team that go and, and basically um, uh, train people there and actually make it work. And then we started other things like train and tool, and I'm going to get into that in a couple of minutes. So birth asphyxia is a huge problem in India. And just to kind of orient people where I work, um, so this is the map of India here. Um, and uh, uh, this is the area of the, the state of Telangana. And this is Hyderabad, where I come from. And um, if you look at um, the neonatal mortality rate uh, in India, it's very high. But also in the state of Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, it is also very high. So um, to, to decrease this, birth asphyxia has been a major problem in um, neonatal mortality. And so we focused on birth asphyxia. And initially, as I said, we started with looking at how can we uh, help babies that already are born with birth asphyxia and created this therapeutic hypothermia workshop and then the Cool Kids program. And we took a team from here. And this was a team um, uh, with Lenny Eisenfeld, Terry Donovan, Leah Baumgarten, Catherine Miller, and Deb Feigenbaum. And you can see there are two physicians, one nurse practitioner, a couple of nurses, and a social worker that went uh, to do this. And we actually did... Uh, Two days of training. This is the whole team um, in front of the Nice Foundation Hospital, and uh, we got this cool blue um, uh, uh, things to kind of basically make sure that everybody understands Cool Kids program. And it was great fun. We did like two days of workshop, some hands-on training, and launched the program off. So that was um, uh, three years back, and uh, we have cooled about 70 kids. Um, and more now, with only four deaths, which is a very a very good survival rate for um, birth asphyxia. 
And uh, just to give you a comparison, in, in, at CCMC we have had this program for 10 years and we have not done 70 kids yet. Um, it's because birth as we say is so prevalent there. The problem is now we, want, we have been doing the treatment part, but we also needed to prevent birth asphyxia. So um, use the strategy of um, neonatal resuscitation. And Dr. Kamaitis is here who basically founded the NRP program, but there's a new NRP version which is meant for the lay people. It's called Helping Babies Breathe. Uh, and the Academy of Pediatrics is promoting it. So we said let's take Helping Babies Breathe and teach Helping Babies Breathe there. Uh, India has its own version of Helping Babies Breathe called NSSK, so we kind of amalgamated the two programs because anytime you go to a different country, you've got to work with their, um, their programs. And so um, the, the, one of the things that has always bothered me is that there's a huge gap, uh, what's called the clinical implementation gap between knowledge and its application. And people know this is a very famous formula where the first gap is between discovery and early trials. The second gap is between finding out what to do and actually putting it into practice. And so um, the people who are involved in neonatal resuscitation have kind of formulated this mathematically into an Utstein's formula. This was done in the Utstein Monastery in Norway uh, with the resuscitation people. What they found that there's medical science, there's educational efficiency, and there's local implementation. You need a combination of that to improve survival after resuscitation. The utopia is that there'd be 100% of all and there'd be 100% efficacy. But actually, it is the medical science is great, 80%. Educational efficiency is not that great. And implementation is not that great. And the actual result is only 20%. So we took this approach of Utstein's um, and basically said, not only we've got to, we can provide the medical science and education, but also we have got to focus on local implementation. So we devised something called a train and tool strategy to to use Helping Babies Breathe. And again, there was another group that went, and um, Shabnam Lainwala is here. She, she was one of our uh, groups that went, and actually one of, she's here in the picture here. So what we did was actually train Helping Babies Breathe. These are all uh, local uh, birth attendants who, uh, at the village level, basically, or the district level. And we actually showed them hands-on. It's a full-day workshop teaching them how to resuscitate babies. And then we gave them the tools, and these were provided by CCMC, you can see the banner here. The CCMC Foundation provided the funds for developing this kit which contained an ambu bag and a few other things, and we gave it to them. So not only we taught them, we gave them the tools to uh, use it. And we went back eight months later and found out that the retention of that training was much better. Um, actually, we, we had trained 208 people in five days that time with the team that went there, and, um, and uh, it was a great success. The last part I want to go into is uh, not only we're doing this, but also I thought it'll be a great opportunity for our learners, the trainees. Um, and so we developed an elective in, um, in global health uh, in India. And Bette Ford, I don't know if she's here um, today, but um, she, she was the first um, fellow to take that elective, and then she went there. Um, the, the way it worked was a one-week preparation in the United States, two-week on-site, in India, in Hyderabad, where through various programs and then a one-week wrap-up and presentation. And here, some of the pictures from the, the school health clinic that she went to. This is a presentation of her QI projects. And this is her QI and NRP that she's doing here as well as in India. And they're collaborating in terms of making it work better. So 
so this is just a quick nutshell of what we're doing. There are a few other programs that we are involved in, but um, I'll be happy to talk about it later. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hussein. Uh, impressive work, really amazing. Um, uh, this slide is a little bit misplaced. Uh, I probably should have mentioned this more after uh, Dr. Hell's presentation, but also one of the points that's made in the AAP policy um, with regards to child health is, is and um, work that can be done here domestically is, is advocacy. Um, you know, Dr. Held mentioned that prior to 2017, we had approximately uh, 900 to 1,000 uh, refugee uh, individuals come to Connecticut to uh, improve their health, to be protected from uh, persecution, and that has stopped. And as pediatricians, as pediatric healthcare providers, um, we are charged by our uh, national organization to be advocates for children throughout the world. Uh, and I think we should all take this responsibility to heart uh, and think about how we are going to do that in the various methods that we have as U.S. citizens to, to advocate for children throughout the world. Um, Another important point uh, made in this policy uh, um, by the AAP and something that um, Dr. Naveed mentioned is that a lot of global health done in resource-limited settings is, is in collaboration with local health care providers. Um, the older model was to go to another country to either give CME lectures, uh, to provide health care um, in an intermittent basis, and really what's been advocated and shown to be much more effective is develop relationships with individuals and healthcare institutions in resource limited settings to help identify what the needs and goals of the partners in those settings are and then work to improve the healthcare provided there, not while we're there, but while we're not there, to improve the healthcare capacity uh, of um, the places in which we're going. And I think Dr. Dunbar from our Division of Endocrinology really is involved in a program that exemplifies um, those concepts of really trying to help healthcare providers in resource-limited settings improve what they do um, based on their goals and what they've identified are the needs of their patients. Um, Dr. Dunbar uh, is obviously an expert in endocrinology here and does great work, but really has been part of developing what's the largest and most advanced type 1 diabetes program in Haiti. Uh, and um, I'll have her come up next and describe her program. Good morning. Thank you for having me, including me in this um, exciting day, talking about um, what so many of us are involved in. Um, so uh, I've been working in Haiti for about five years, and I think which is common to many uh, of us, it all happened very um, fortuitously, where someone contacted me, a person I had trained with, um, asking if I knew of any endocrinologist who would be willing to help a local pediatrician who um, was in northern Haiti um, after the um, hurricane, and had, he was just finishing his residency training in Haiti and was very upset and distraught about the high mortality of these children that were developing uh, type 1 diabetes and coming in with recurrent DKA and being sent out with uh, perhaps a vial of insulin, um, only to come in again four or six weeks later um, having lost more weight with another round of DKA and something had to be done. Um, and so um, 
I, of course, um, said I thought I knew somebody, and, um, <laughs> and uh, five years later, um, I've been going down once or twice a year, um, and it's uh, been a, an amazing experience, and I just wanted to share some of this um, with you today. So um, this program was, uh, has been developed by the gentleman on your left, Mark, uh, 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 Dr. Mark Xavier, and he uh, has had the vision and uh, identified this need and has just been pulling this program along with him, but he's had no um, training or really experience of what it means to have insulin-dependent diabetes and how does one uh, manage insulin and, and what, what do we need to uh, what do we need to help these families understand about their food intake and how do we how do we provide insulin in a safe way where food insecurity is such an amazing struggle? So um, one of the things we realized is that we had to get these families and these children in to care as much as possible with, with no barriers in place. So um, uh, in talking with him, we realized we needed to figure out a way that he could provide an entirely free care to these children. And um, so over the first two years, uh, he was able to link himself to an international organization called Life for a Child, which does provide to resource-limited countries a small amount of the uh, most necessary supplies to manage diabetes. So that is a glucometer and um, 10 syringes a month, um, 10 lancets a month, those are the things to prick your finger, and basically a vial of insulin. Well, anyone that has worked a little bit with diabetes here knows that that is, I don't know, 5% of what a person really would need to manage their diabetes. But it was a start, and it got there, it provided a bit of structure. So um, we started linking up to this program, and um, I went down and uh, provided the guidance about what it takes to allow someone to live in their community with insulin-dependent diabetes. Um, it is, uh, to say it was uh, a challenge to grasp all the uh, difficulties that face these children and families with a diagnosis like this is, a, is an understand, understatement. Um, what we realized very quickly was that Dr. Xavier couldn't do this as an afterthought to his already 70-hour job, uh, pro which is pro providing primarily acute care in this hospital setting. And so he needed um, a, a dedicated nurse that would really provide the, the ongoing care that these children needed. So um, my colleague, who is a, an intensivist at Yale, um, and I started fundraising and were able to, uh, through the graciousness of our communities and friends and families, um, were able to fund uh, the salary and um, agree, get the hospital uh, in Haiti to hire a nurse if we would fund the salary for this nurse. So three years ago, a dedicated diabetes nurse um, came aboard, and that has changed things dramatically um, in this hospital and this program. And so after we got the nurse, um, things got a lot more, uh, there was a lot more structure provided to the program. And my role was to help bring the education to uh, both Dr. Xavier and to this nurse. 
Um, so you can see that the, um, the, the nurse is uh, in the bottom picture on the left-hand side, and through um, work that a Yukon medical student did, who is a Haitian-American, uh, she came down with us twice on two trips, and she developed an educational curriculum in Creole, because she spoke uh, Creole. And she developed an educational toolkit that we were able to publish, and is now part of the educational curriculum that this uh, certified diabetes um, nurse educator, who's from this local community, now can work with the families and provide this education in Creole to these children when they're diagnosed with diabetes. <clears throat> So the program now has about um, 75 children in it, ages 8 to 25, and it's continuing to be sustained by uh, individual donations and small grants um, that a nonprofit uh, organization based out of Massachusetts um, uh, secures for the program. Dr. Xavier came up to CCMC approximately um, three years ago and spent two weeks here in our diabetes office and at Yale in, in their uh, intensive care unit to see how things were done here. Um, now, in Haiti, there's no such thing as uh, insulin pumps, uh, continuous glucose sensors. Um, they don't have access to glucagon. Um, they have uh, very uh, minimal surrounding structure that we have here, the ability to download a meter. Um, so a lot of what he saw here, um, one would think, well, that's not applicable. But what was applicable is he saw what it took, the team approach it took to manage diabetes. And he went back and um, he was able to uh, bring a social worker on board into the program, um, get his nurse more fully engaged in the program, and really um, uh, hook up um, more intensively with other support within the hospital to bring a little bit more meat to his diabetes program. Um, so since that time, uh, there has been a connection to a regular ophthalmologic exams. <clears throat> Unfortunately, children who develop type 1 diabetes in these research resource-poor countries have increasingly rapid development of uh, what we think is just microvascular disease. And so we have very high rate of cataract development in these young children with diabetes, which we just never see here. Um, and so that is something that is being studied, but that has made this linkage with this ophthalmologist critically important because we've had... Um, is approaching 10% of the children have had to have cataract surgery um, for their uh, eye disease that has developed in the setting of their type 1 diabetes, whether that's a confluence of malnutrition in addition to uh, their chronic hyperglycemia, we don't know. <clears throat> the other thing that uh, CCMC has been wonderful about is that we have uh, been able to donate and continue to supply them with hemoglobin A1C monitoring and to provide them with glucagon. Um, obviously, we all knew that, know that DKA is a high, uh, is a very, um, something that we know about is a mortality, a risk of mortality in type 1 diabetes. We don't have a lot of children dying from hypoglycemia in the United States. But uh, in Haiti, the death rate in diabetes is higher for hypoglycemia than it is for DKA. So that is 
extremely um, devastating for people involved with diabetes care in Haiti because they've got the children and they're giving them insulin and they hear that they've died at home because of hypoglycemia. Um, and this, this has happened in our program um, twice now. And um, so since in the last five years, we've had five deaths, which is extremely high um, when you compare to what we see here in Connecticut. Um, we don't have a good sense of what that is in terms of uh, comparison to other mortality rate within uh, uh, under-resourced country because that kind of statistics just isn't available. But we've had three deaths from DKA um, and two deaths from hypoglycemia um, among treated children. That said, we do feel, Dr. Xavier feels that this has been uh, uh, a huge benefit to um, the building the awareness in northern Haiti because now they, he's getting lots of referrals for children. The age of the children uh, arriving for care is decreasing. So it was rare to have a children less than 12 years of age be diagnosed with diabetes, not because they didn't have it, but because it wasn't recognized. And so they would die from unrecognized diabetes, either in the setting of dehydration uh, or cardiorespiratory collapse, and no one would realize that it, the underlying cause was, was diabetes. So the fact that our age range goes down to eight now is actually something that is notable. Um, meanwhile, here we have uh, people in late infancy diagnosed, so we know we're missing tons and tons of small children in Haiti. Um, the this, this is trying to uh, develop a chronic care program in a system that's really designed um, and fully focused on acute care. So the thought of, of the, from, from the healthcare providers, even Dr. Xavier and the nurse to the families, the thought of coming back regularly just to learn more about how to manage your disease is, is, is a hard adjustment to make. Um, having the, trying to get the system at that hospital to realize that you can't see 70 diabetics in a day and expect them to leave and be able to manage their diabetes in a different way. So that has been a, a big challenge, cultural challenge to try to break that cycle up of, well, well, we'll have all the diabetics come on Saturday and they'll get all their new supplies, a new two vials of insulin, new syringes, and, you know, they'll tell us if they're having problems to realizing, no, we have to actually be able to, to give them each probably an hour to understand what's happening in their house. Um, you know, oh, the flood came through their house last month and everything washed away, including the clay pot that they stored their insulin in, including their last glucometer and their extra battery. And, you know, and, and to understand that, oh, all the adults left the house and now the child was living with an aunt in another town and she didn't know anything about diabetes. Um, we, we needed to understand that we needed to know those things in order to help these children uh, have a chance of, of surviving and growing and developing. <clears throat> so for me, this, the awareness was when I would come there for my week's visits, I was really looked to be the person that would spend that time with these families and um, the Haitian providers would um, would often go and do their um, their own work, <laughs> and because there's there's never a shortage of work, and it wasn't until a couple uh, visits passed that I realized that I was falling into the trap 
of going down there providing the care and leaving and I needed to change that approach and I needed to go down there and plan ahead of time that the Dr. Xavier and the clinical nurse would be there uh, with me and I could just hear how they were talking about the diabetes care and uh, make inquiries, questions about um, things that were going on and uh, to try to model in a very uh, unab uh, uh, obtrusive way how they might change their approach so that the child left with a different level of understanding about how to uh, manage things. Um, these are just some uh, pictures of the, the challenges when you don't have enough supplies. So you're, they're using dirty needles, uh, they're using dirty lancets, they're uh, not understanding that they have to keep their skin clean. <laughs> Um, and so there's lots of abscesses, uh, lots of scarring, um, children don't grow well, um, and, uh, and these things need to be recognized um, and dealt with on a continual basis to help these children. The other challenge is there's never enough time, um, and uh, returning here and understanding that we live in such a land of, of plenty. Um, and uh, that the children there have 5% of what we have here or less in terms of the uh, equipment and uh, access to professionals to help them with their, their challenges. Um, it's a heavy thing to, to, to try to reconcile. Um, so we look forward to bringing Dr. Xave up and his diabetic nurse educator up again this year to present at the International Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Diabetes in Boston uh, because one way we uh, are hoping to, uh, to improve things for them is to continue to expose their uh, leaders of their own program to further education and uh, so they are uh, submitting their uh, program for uh, presentation at this international uh, diabetes uh, meeting in, in Boston and we look forward to welcoming them and hosting them uh, here in Connecticut for that event in the fall. <coughs> so that's the end of mine. I'll pass it back to Adam. <laughs> So I'm going to ask uh, the other two panelists to come up. We have a few minutes left uh, for some questions.